You're listening to Tuned with Alastair Atkin from the Atkin Guitars Workshop. I'm Alastair Atkin, and in this podcast, I'm going to chat to a few of the music industry people I've been lucky enough to meet over the last 25 years of being a guitar maker. Amongst them are musicians, songwriters, composers, and fellow guitar makers. Some of them you'll have heard of, and some of them you might not. Today I'm talking to Steve Boltz, guitarist of Atomic Rooster, also a respected session player having played with the likes of The Who, Paul Young, Dr John and Keith Richards. Steve's a great raconteur, if you get the chance to go and see him live uh, it's well worth a watch, he's quite a character. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Hey Steve, it's great to have you. Uh, on this little podcast that we've started. Yeah, Alistair, and, uh, how are you doing? How are you doing? I haven't... Uh... Well, crazy year. We, yeah. we used to sort of see each other occasionally at gigs or knocking around in Whitstable. Yeah, that's um, right. Or, or when I when I took my um, my aged 62 Strat for um, next door in the workshops to see ex- Exactly. Exactly. Fritz. And uh, I think that... I, I remember first seeing you... Um, I think it was on TV... And although I didn't know who you were, I saw I was really into that the the Who incarnation when they did Tommy back in the late eighties, and I I bought that live yeah. album and the D that it would have been a video back then I guess, and uh, and I saw this guy, oh. a really tall, sleek looking guy with spiked up hair playing this yellow Strat, and yeah. and I just thought, yeah, who the hell's he? He's really cool. And I loved your guitar playing, and um... I, th- I think that was that was the last of the. Uh, I mean, no disrespect to the subsequent tours from the Who. Well, yeah, a bit really, but I think that was kind <laughs> of the the last the last uh, oh, period with where it was you could take it seriously. Well, John Entwistle was on bass, wasn't he? So it was. He was on bass. Yeah. It was like the the step after Keith Moon that that sort of obviously they had a nice long run and. Yeah. Yeah. To my mind, that band was absolutely rocking, and um, yeah. yeah, so that's where I first heard about you. And then, strange quirk of fate, I used to see this guy come into like these different pubs in in our area here. We're down in Kent, in 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 the UK, in Whitstable, right, yeah, and and uh, Canterbury, and I I saw this guy emerge in this like paisley suit, I think it was, at these gigs, and I think, blimey, this guy's different to anybody <laughs> I've seen around here. Yeah. Well, uh, I actually ended up there in Whistable by accident. Um, and what? How? Well, it's woman trouble. <laughs> Ooh. I'm 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 North Manchester by birth, but I've lived in London since like 1971. You know when I moved down there. So okay, my my whole of my adult life really I've spent in London. And I, I consider myself coming from there. So when I when I had to leave, you know, it was a bit of a bit of a shock. But I used to play in Whistable. You know, and play the old Neptune, and then drive back to South East London. But then I ended up, uh, I ended up. Uh, oh, it's weird. I, ended, I lived in a field near Bodium. Let me move the. I'm just going to move the cursor off your nose. Not that anyone listening to this can see. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes in life you have to um, hit a, as David Bowie said, an all-time low. Yeah. Before, um, you know, before we can really see what's happening and uh, I think the older you get when you get in the drop zone <laughs> you know you send everything starts coming together 
and you realize what's what's what and what's what what you really need from life and what but i, I think my whole life I've, I've wanted to sort of update my data yeah and i, I kind of pride myself in that but anyway well but we're getting a bit quasi philosophical here hey i don't mind i think hey. i think it's all good on <laughs> yeah but um so yeah that's that's where i first encountered you and then you came into the workshop one day and, and yeah. andy crockett did some work on your guitars yeah. and yeah he, he used to um yeah, he used to work on my 62 Strat. Yeah, the old yellow one. Shall we talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, my, yeah, go for it, go for it. Well, I've got a 62 Strat, as you know, bright yellow, um, hand-painted. So in the uh, late 70s, I would say about 77, 78, I was living in Crouch End, the trendiest, one of the trendiest places in London, but then it was just bedsit land. Yeah. I lived, you know, I lived there, and I decided that I'd had a Strat before, when I was in Atomic Rooster, I bought it in a, in LA, and I got it immediately got stolen when I came back to England. But that's another story. Um, so I thought, well, I, I would like, like a vintage Strat, early '60s Strat. So I thought, and you could get them for about five hundred quid, but you really had to still search for them. There was no internet, and then you see, you bought like Exchange and Mark. Yeah. So I saved up. The only time I've saved up money in my life, really, I saved up five hundred quid. The moment I, I had 500 quid in my bank account, I went to um, Barclays Bank in Muswell Hill in, in Crouch End Broadway on a Saturday morning and drew the 500 quid out. So I thought, right, I've got the cash now. I walked out of the bank and right next door was a little music, a little shop that I hadn't really seen before, John Beebe's Music Centre. Tiny little music shop. And hanging in the window yeah. was that yellow strat just hanging there with no price on. I went, okay. Was it like a religious moment? It's sung to you. Well, I have what? these all the time. I have these all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're things that happen. And I would like to find out. I think they they happen in life, but, you, you know, you've got to see this. So I went in there and uh, I, I said, that's right. He went, yeah, I'm selling it for somebody. I said, oh, how much is it? He 240 quid. I said, really? Inside, I'm thinking... A shit colour. I'll change the colour. It's obviously a non-original colour. So I looked at it, picked it up. I had an action. You could drive a horse and cart under the strings. But I thought, well, uh -huh. it's all there, you know. So I bought it. Yeah. And I took it down to a guy in uh, in uh, Kent Village who did Jeff Beck's guitars in in Yolding. I don't really know this guy. I don't know who he was. In Yolding. No. Yolding's I, I, a village. Where's he? Yolding's a village. Is that in Kent? Yeah. It always gets flooded. When they're flooded. Right. So, but anyway. Yeah. And he uh, he set it up. So I thought, well, there goes my. I was going to change the colour, but because he'd set it up, I left it. Mm. And so that guitar became synonymous with me. And I, you know, I've still got it. It did kind of like the value of it did rise. I think they were going for like, um, you know, like anywhere between 15 and 20 grand. Yeah. Yeah. 62. But then all of a sudden, they split, didn't they? Vintage guitars became like players models and ones that hadn't been touched and had yeah. still had the, the little the tagaroonies on yeah, yeah no refinishes so, and... so about about five or six years ago i thought about selling it to free up some cash <gasps> no yeah and uh, i'm thinking of doing it again but that's another story <laughs> i'll buy it and send it back to yeah. you when you got some more cash yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah but um yeah so i've still got it and uh, so but a bloke uh trolled me on facebook he said i think i'm the original owner of that guitar really and he set up a facebook page my long lost beautiful <laughs> strat or something but he, became, he got a bit weird you know and he became a bit weird but he told me this story that his bass player bought it and then it was white and oh yeah it was white and, you know so yeah 
Well, I mean, that guitar, you don't see many yellow guitars around, do you? So it kind of probably no. gave you an identity that uh, it's that bloke with the yellow Strat again. Well, um, it was good because um, when you're on stage and the lights changed, it would go salmon pink. Hey, so yeah. I thought if ever I want to sell it, I'll sell it to somebody <laughs> under some coloured lights. And That's right, a Hank fan. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, yeah. When you were in the workshop, I, I think we started chatting, and you 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 told yeah. me some brilliant stories uh, about. <laughs> and and I've since found out you've been doing a. We did a one man show last year or the year before. Is that you? Uh, well, yeah. I, it's this story when I moved to Whitstable, and uh, my life kind of turned around, and I met I met my wife, um, Louise. Now this this was um. This was 10 years ago now. Wow, time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and people were going, Steve, you've got all these stories. You should you should write a book. You know, I said, I'm thinking, well, no, I'm not going to write a book because it's really boring. And, you know, like, like sort of sit down every day and type. With that, I love a book. With that fit. I love, oh, me. I love a good biography, autobiography, <laughs> don't you? I, lo I love it. I yeah. Get all this yeah, I'm reading Pete Townsend at the moment. Right, yeah, I think I've got that. Someone sent me that. But, but um yeah. I, a while back, I read two books, yeah. one with each eye. <laughs> one was um, Iggy Pop's Iggy Pop autobiography. I mean, what Iggy Pop? What is there not to like about uh, Iggy Pop? Yeah. And the other one was uh, the bass player from the Ramones, R.I.P. They're all dead, aren't they? But for the bass player, the Ramones. And I, I had, I had like the Ramones down as as kind of like a an art school project. Yeah. In in Moronity, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And Iggy Pop was a moron. But no, it's the other way around. Like Iggy Pop was really intelligent. That was a persona that he invented. Sharp cookie, so he could eh? Be like that. But the Ramones really were like that. Well, that, see, I don't know much about the Ramones. <laughs> I, they're, they're a sort yeah. of band that I've never really delved into. So, you know, uh, like you get these gaps in your listening, and uh, yeah. yeah, so I've not. Well, well, I'm the same with Iggy Pop. See, my in the late seventies there was an album, New Values, and that was how I started listening to Iggy Pop. Great songs and you know, great guitar playing, you know, two guitars lit slamming together. But it was only um, about 15 years ago. I was watching the Glastonbury Festival in bed yeah. in Greenwich, and uh, it was on there. And who was on there? The Killers were on. Yeah. And I'm going. I'm sinking slowly and slowly down behind my pillow. Going, is this the state of music at the moment? You know, I actually. I thought, no, no, I can't, because I, I hated it. Right. It was all a bit too slick and L.A. for me. And yeah. But then the voice, uh, the, the voice went over on uh, BBC Four, uh, uh, Iggy Pop, Iggy and the Stooges. So I switched over, and immediately Iggy's there, bum 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 bum. She's bum 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 bum. Not right. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. I thought this is what you want. <laughs> but I immediately got the the other you know, the, the Stooges albums, and they're just amazing. Uh -huh. They're just it's lovely when that happens, isn't it? It's suddenly get it, uh, and it's. Uh... But at the time, at the time, you know, 1971. So I mean, no one was listening to stuff like that. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was sort of yes, and you know, all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah, we, you, you were so in 1971. You, you arrived in London and you started playing with Atomic yeah. Rooster then. And right. I mean, I yeah. don't know that much about Atomic Rooster, but I, no. I can see. Uh, from the research that I've done, that they they were uh, you know on a world platform at that point. Could give us a bit of the the lowdown yeah, well, about that band. Well, um, I used to when I lived in Manchester, I used to go to the 
the university. I didn't go to the university. I used to go there to see bands. Mm -hmm. On a Saturday night in the main hall, there'd be all these top bands came on, you know. And I saw, about three years before I came to London, I saw the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Whoa. I am the god of hell. Yeah. And I stood there, and it was just the most fantastic thing. I think you had... Um, Carl Palmer on drums, yeah, and Arthur's there with it with his fiery hat, and Vincent Crane, mad, you know, on the on the Hammond B3, and all the keys on the Hammond B3, he obviously melted them with a blow lamp, <laughs> they, they were all dripping like candle wax, and all the, you know, I thought this is fantastic. Little did I know that four years later I'd be playing with Vincent Crane because wow. shortly after that, um, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, I think Vincent ended up in a mental hospital, you mm. know. Anyway, we came to London with a band, you know, two vans overnight, one our own van, a hired van. Our parents waved us off, and we had boxes and boxes of uh, Kellogg's uh, variety, you know, the little yeah, packets, yeah. which we lived on Lovely. for, like, weeks and weeks. You <laughs> see? <laughs> no milk. Yeah. <laughs> and then a friend of mine came round to us. We had a house in Hounslow, and he said, we had bags of sugar. And he said, you know, you can make that. He was, from, he fought, he was my old school friend, right. James Litherland, who joined Coliseum. He came down before. He came around and, and said to us, and we sat there eating, you know, he said, you know, those bags of sugar you've got, you can make them into toffee. And we went, you what? <laughs> he said, yeah. So we all gathered around the cooker, you know, we had a freezing cup. <laughs> we put the sugar in a pan, just melted all the sugar into a goo and then let it set. Yeah. And we all got it, hit it with a hammer, all sat around. We thought, this is fantastic. Should have put the um, the cornflakes in at the same time and you'd have made those nice little... Yeah, that yeah. would... <laughs> no. Yeah. Musicians oh, didn't think that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so we came down and uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who came down ahead, got us a house in Hounslow, it was all very exotic. So we got this house and we were in there, six-piece band and a roadie, and uh, we, we got a residency at the club in Earl's Court, which we did every week. You know, wh whenever I hear that early 70s, early to mid-70s disco music, mm -hmm. I, I sort of get the shakes, you know, because that, that's the kind of uh, the music that you'd hear with a half, with a nearly empty club, right. with clanking... <laughs> <laughs> Tumbleweed sort of going through the dance. Anyway, so yeah, um, yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> but we used to um, we used to nick petrol to get to a gig. We had this old long wheelbase truck. We used to have to siphon <laughs> petrol to. Uh, see, I'm confessing. Uh, that. Yeah, it's all right. No one's going to listen to this. <laughs> no, <laughs> to get to the next gig, and then one day I think the drummer came. He said, "Listen, in the next street is a." Uh, is a is a is a, a market cart, you know, like fruit and veg, yeah. with a tarpaulin over. So yeah, we used to go and nick, we used to nick milk off doorsteps when people had milk. Yeah, we became really cool. Yeah. So that went on for a few weeks, and then the band split up. A few of the guys went back to London. Two of the guys joined up, ended up in Muswell Hill, and I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So they said, well, listen, why don't you why don't you come and sleep on our sofa? So I moved to Muswell. Yeah, Earl slept on the sofa, and there was an advert in the in the music paper when the music papers would put adverts in the back. Well, Melody you know, Maker. You and don't do that now. We go like wait. Melody Maker. Yeah, yeah I'm Melody Maker. So Atomic Atomic Rooster required guitar player to start immediately for a US tour. <laughs> phone and he had Vincent Crane's phone number. Good thing. Good thing. <laughs> Someone sent me that very advert. I've actually got that advert on file, but 
<laughs> so I was a rhythm guitar player. I wasn't a lead player. I wanted to right. be, when I started off, when I, I wanted to be, I was like the rhythm guitar player in the shadows. That's what I, I mean, I dug Hank Marvin, but yeah. we had a guy that played lead. He couldn't play chords. I can play chords. And I, I loved all that thing. Yeah. I think that's probably why um, I can't stand another guitar player in a band. Whatever band I'm in, I don't want another guitar player there because it, the frequencies just not because I can, you know, I, I do it all, you know, I, I, I yeah. can do it all at the same time, which is <laughs> yeah, um, I, because I'm a genius. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so I answer so I answer this ad, um, and I went for an audition, and then they said, yeah, we'll let you know. But at the time, I had a Fender bassman, like a real. I'd heard this story about a Fender bassman being the holy grail of amps, right? But it's from the fifties, you know, the brown tweed thing. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got one actually in the workshop at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's like the holy grail of Fender amps, isn't it? The, the basement is what Cliff yeah. Gallup used, what they all used. But in the in the early 70s, Fender bought out this 2x15 with a Jensen and a JBL speaker in uh-huh. and a head with treble, volume, treble and bass, volume, treble and bass. It was a bass amp. Oh, right. So I, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I sort of like, Traded in my Marshall stack. Well, it was two cabinets and a and a, and a PA head that I used for, for guitar. I traded that in and did a gig with it with the, with my band up in Manchester. I thought I thought it was a Fender Bassman, but it was a Fender Bassman, uh-huh. and it was it was shit. It was, <laughs> it was, it was like plugging into a bass. Amp. Oh shit! Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so I had a job playing guitar in a strip club. To you know, started at two o'clock in the morning, and I, and I would get the all night bus back and. So I came in. They said, "I told Bruce phone back again. They want you to. They want you to go for another audition." And I'm thinking, "Oh, I can't. I've got the job. I've got the da da da." Anyway, I went. So immediately, I got the job in Atomic Rooster. They were number two in the chart with Devil's Answer at the time. Wow! So we did a gig down in in the West Country, I think in Exeter or something, a big club. Mm-hmm. We went down the train. To me, this is like I'm completely green behind the ears. I. Yeah, yeah. I didn't really drink. I didn't smoke pot. I think once I had, you know. So I'm like, "Hello, yeah. hi. I'm from I, I'm from up north. I'm, I'm from up north. Yeah. Eh? I'm fresh. <laughs> Pop me up, right? <laughs> give me, give me, give me like a, a condensed fucking up <laughs> quickly. So, yeah. Right. So yeah. Rick Parnell. Rick Parnell was on drums. He's the son of Jack Parnell, who was like a big... Uh, I've heard of Jack Parnell. Where from? Yeah, he's a, he was a big band leader. Right. And uh, there was a programme called New Faces. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, and he was a judge on there. Big BBC TV celebrity kind of... So we go to the gig. I walk in this big, this huge club with a low ceiling, massive sort of uh, club down the exit. A huge WMPA. On, in the middle of the... Because I'd rehearsed with them with this Fender basement amp I had. Oh, no, I borrowed an AC30. That's yeah. right, I borrowed an AC30. And Vincent Crane, no bass player, and Rick had this huge bass drumming kit, you know, and Vincent Crane had the Hammond B3 with, like, one 4x12 cabinet, high watt, and a and an old-school uh, reflex um, Ampeg bass thing for the, for, the, for the bottom manual. And this all went down on the train with you? No, no, no. So oh, that's right. what we rehearsed. <laughs> right, oh, no, okay. right. So we get, so we get in there, and I look at the stage, and I see the biggest drum kit I've ever seen in my life. Double kit, all the whole yeah. thing. At, at the Vincent Crane side of the stage was like six 
you know, three <laughs> stacks, six four by twelve cabinet, and two uh, Ampeg bass amps, reflex, you know, big, big blue and black yeah. thing. And at my side of the stage, a little uh, <laughs> Fender bassman. <laughs> and I couldn't hear a thing. I I played all night. <laughs> but then I ended up with the high watt stacks and the whole deal. Right. Yeah. Then we went to America, and it was. Um, so you got to remember that America in 1971 was still like the 60s, you know, where where you've gone stage and there'd be a haze of of dope and stuff. There were people on the side of the stage. That was great. That was great because you're on a stage with wings. Everyone's there climbing. And, yeah, you know, have a spliff. You know. So that's great. Now it's like no one allowed backstage, you know. <laughs> that's what it was like. It was crazy. So you arrive in... 1971, you arrive in America. I, I've got to wonder what that was like for, for anyone from England from, in 1971. The preconceptions of that must have been mind-blowing, and then arriving must have been mind-blowing. I mean, did you love it, or were you frightened? How was it? I, I, I'll tell you what, why I love it. We had played, we played in England with, with... Well, I noticed it when we came back. We did two tours back-to-back. What I noticed when we came back and did gigs, because I hadn't really done large gigs until I joined Rooster. That in America, the people were, were re- I love Americans as people, individually, you know, they're fantastic. And the audiences were amazing. You know, they would, they would even though we'd be opening up for another major band, yeah. they just wanted you to be good. Yeah. And they wanted to have a good time. Whereas here, we'd go and play and there'd be nobody in when we played, if we were opening up for somebody or. Yeah. Yeah, I just really, um, I just really felt at home. I thought this is where I should be. Um, you know, yeah. in you, another life, I would have, I would have lived, I would have gone to live there, but I, it never happened. But, I, you know, and the, the musical heritage and the whole thing. Ah, oh, it's very, yeah. very. Uh, you, you once told me a story about Leave on Helm that um, I can't remember. Do, do you remember telling me a story about Le- yeah. Leave on Helm? Did you have a meeting with him somewhere? And uh, well, yeah, I slept on his floor. But <laughs> right, for those who don't know. Leave on Helm is the drummer in the band. The best, you know, the band that the drummer. best drummer singer of all time potentially. It, it well, I, for me anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the band, they had three guys that sang. They had Richard Manuel, uh, the other guy, the bass player, and Rick and Danko. Rick Danko and uh, and Levon. And he, either one of those guys could have fronted a band as a vocalist by themselves. Yeah, by themselves. Yeah. But Robbie Robertson, he didn't sing. Can't sing a note, but he wrote all, he wrote all the songs. Yeah. That's such yeah. a bizarre thing, you know. But yeah. anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, about twelve years ago, I, was to, I did a series of charity gigs in in the states. One in uh, L.A., two in New York, and they, they, they were for the Rainforest Alliance. One was called the Night of the Blues, and we had various people on, like Robert Cray, Doctor John, Wow, yeah, Levon, Levon Helm, and uh, Hubert Sumlin. Who was uh, who was uh, Howling Wolf's guitar player, Hubert Sumlin? Yeah. Who became? He followed me around, like <laughs> eight years old, and he goes, "Bolts, you're the man." Yeah. I thought this is the guy that this is the guy that played Armatail Dragon, <laughs> and that's he did all that shit. He did that in the forties and fifties. He's there, oh. eighty-seven years old, I think. You know, and he followed me around, going, "Bolts, you're the man. You're the man." I said, "No." I said, Hubert, you're the man. You're the man. He said, boss, I got a young girlfriend as well. She's 20 years younger than me. She's only 65 years old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we did the gig, um, 
this was um, the second time I'd run into Keith Richards. This was the, a night of the blues yeah. at the Beacon Theatre in New York, and we had to rehearse for it. Yeah. Now, I was part of the, the backing group. So you had Steve Jordan on drums, Pino on bass, mm -hmm. a piano player and stuff. So we, we had this, we ended up in this rehearsal room in New York, big place, but it was because there were so many people in there. So Steve Jordan's trying to juggle all these egos around. Him. Yeah. So we're doing, could have been the right place, wrong time with Dr. John. Oh. And he's trying, and we got, the, we got the Memphis horns there as well. So Steve Jordan's going to, uh, and Keith Rich is here next to me. So we're doing, so Steve Jordan's trying to assign, um, he's trying to assign solos for this finale. Yeah. And he's going, well, maybe Jim Horn, Jim Horn, who I later met with when I played with it, you do a sol solo and Boltz, maybe Boltz does a solo and Dr. John's going, yes, yeah, solo, I solely, my God. <laughs> Jim, you do a solo, Boltz, you do a solo. And then he points across the room at Keith Richard, who at this point is hiding behind me. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, and that's for you, you addle brain motherfucker. <laughs> he said, you can kiss my goddamn ass. And he wasn't joking. Ooh. This is like, this was like serious shit. And Keith's like behind me, like this. So afterwards, I said to Steve Jordan, I said, what was all that about? He said, well, there's really bad blood between Dr. John, Ry Cooder, and the Rolling Stones because Dr. John and Ry Cooder wrote a lot of the stuff on Exile on Main Street. It, they were their riffs. Really? They stuck, but never got any credit as oh. even playing or writing the stuff. So. Oh dear. Oh dear. Bit of, go oh. Bit of gossip for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've a lot, that's the first time I played slide guitar because I never played open tuning bottleneck. Yeah. Never did it. But about the night before, I got a message from Steve Jordan saying I had to play slide guitar with Keith Richards on Happy. Oh my! So all I had was all I had all I had was a cassette. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave myself a crash course in in playing slide guitar. Yeah. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure. I figured no. that was open open G tuning, right? You know about all this. Yeah, you I mean do. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I love open G tuning, don't you? It's all there, isn't it? It's all there. Yes. I was just reaching over for my dobro there, which is right there in open G. Go on, anyway. give us a give us an open G on your dobro. So the good thing about open G is uh, you can't see that, but as you know, you can you play the second, third, and fourth strings just the same as regular yeah. tuning. Yeah, it's kind of all under your fingers as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I love it. Anyway, so um, Levon Helm, he was on this, and Levon, you know, everyone in America goes, we must, we must write together. We must blah blah blah. We love, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So after one of these shows, that show, I I flat sat for for Steve Jordan in L.A. at this flat on Fifth Avenue. And mm -hmm. I just, you know, looked after it while he went down to Jamaica to do some production work. One day I got a phone call from, and it's Steve Jordan from uh, from Jamaica going, Bolts. He said, listen. I said, yeah. He said, I just spoke to Pino, Pino Pallet, he yeah. said, who was on the show. He said, I just spoke to Pino, and Pino told me something very interesting. I said, what's that? He said, he said that Levon Helm said to you, let's write some songs together. I went, yeah, well, you know. He said, well, listen, this is what you do. You go up to the to the bus station there on, on, in Manhattan, and you get a bus up to Woodstock, where Levon lived. Yeah. And you don't come back until you've <laughs> written 
until you've written some stuff with Levon Helm. I went, yeah, but he said, I'll fix it. I'll get the manager. So then I get Levon's manager. He said, yeah, you come up. Levon's, Levon's cool. You come up. And that, you know, the, oh, I, don't wow. know. I didn't even have a guitar with me, you know. So I, I got on the bus, the three-hour journey up the Hudson Valley to Woodstock. And I got off the bus and uh, I'm stood there in Woodstock. And then this old Saab came up and it was Levon Helm. Bolts get in there, and he was like, and I knew he had throat cancer, you know. And the whole back seat of the car was piled high with Coca-Cola tins, because that was the only thing that relieved it. So he drink Coke and chuck the tin over. Yeah. So we drove. Uh, we drove. He said, "I live out of town." So I'm th- I think, shit, I'm going to go to that house, you know, like the the big, the big pink. pink and all. I think I'm going to go there. I don't know what, which house it was, but. On the way there, he said, are you hungry? I said, well, I'm kind of, he said, because well, we got no food. So you, he said, so we went to this Chinese restaurant and it was really, I didn't really have any money. And he, he ordered all this shit for me, you know, then I, I had to pay for it, you know. So, <laughs> so we got this food and we went to Levon's house and he put me in the studio, he's building a studio. It's like, you know, a lot of wooden stuff. And I, so I had a sleeping bag on the floor and there's a guitar in the corner. It was a, it was a dobro like a green, green color, really high action. That was the only guitar. And he said, I gotta go to bed now. I'm feeling a bit, you know, like a bit tired, and that, you know. So I kind of slept there and I, I, and I dreamt a song. I, I've only dreamt a couple of songs in my life, but this song, and I had the, the chord progression. And he went, I found out Jesus wants me for a chain smoker. I thought, that's great. Jesus wants me for a chain smoker. <laughs> yeah. So the next, so later on the next day, Levon said, hey, boss, he said, did you write any songs yet? Did you get any ideas? I said, well, yeah. He said, what is it? I said, well, I don't know. I didn't want to tell him, you know, because he had throat cancer through smoking. Yeah. I said, he said, what is it? I said, well, it's called Jesus Wants Me For A Chain Smoker." He said, I love it, man. I love it. So uh, the other thing I, I um, strange coincidence, I was just on Google the other day and I somehow found out you'd played with Paul Young. Um, yeah. And uh, my when I when I was a kid, I bought No Parley. That, that, yeah. I don't know, it might be a second album, I can't remember. But it was no, a big first, album, wasn't first, it? Yeah, it was a it, huge album, yeah. Like, uh, Wherever I, I Lay My Hat was probably yeah. the biggie on that, wasn't it? And um, yeah. my favourite song on that was Coo Coo Karama, which <laughs> I don't know how many people actually would, would have had the same feeling about that song on that album, but to me, I'd never heard anything like yeah. it, and I still haven't heard anything like that song since. No. And so I, I, right. I suddenly found out you yeah. wrote it. And I listened to your right, version yeah. the other day. I think you recorded a new version recently. Uh, as us. Yeah, we did. Yeah, with Dead Man's Corner. Yeah, it's a brilliant song. It's so original. Where did that song oh, well, thank, come thank, from? Thank you. I tell you well, I, well, I tell, I tell you what happened. Um, someone lent me. Well, getting back to the Paul Young thing. Yeah. Uh, Paul had the was in the Q-Tips, and they yeah. were like a, a white soul band, you know, played universities and they were big, weren't they? Whatever. Sort of hot. They were big, band. but it wasn't my my thing. I was aware of it. Yeah. Um, they Paul wanted to record the album with no guitar player, so they had the band and Re- Reverend Cooley just died recently on keyboards and Pino. So they had more or less eight songs in the can, I think, mm-hmm. with no guitar, and they'd done a couple of gigs. 
but they decided they wanted a guitar player. So I get a phone call. Yeah, yeah. So I did my thing. I had the Strat and the PV amp. I did my thing, a bit of feedback and that. And that. But I, what impressed Paul was my rhythm playing. Right, yeah. I, I had that sheet sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, fit like right in. Yeah, so um, he said, yeah, brilliant. He said, Paul, oh, he said, you're in. We got this, we're doing this album, it's nearly finished. He said, but we're a song short. Have you got any, um, have you got a song maybe? Because they're all covers on the album. Yeah. So I had a cassette in my pocket. Spool back a couple of days previously, someone had lent me a, lent me a, a TR-808 drum machine. And I just had it in my bedroom. And then, you know, that yeah. early drum machine sound. And that, triggered me to write this song that and i i don't know so i wrote the song in literally 10 minutes it took me 10 minutes to write it oh, one of the quickest songs i've ever written and i i'd I record it on a cassette and i just happened to have it in my pocket i gave it to him he phoned me up paul then he said yeah we'll do it let's record it i said oh cool right cool. Oh. so from <laughs> so from being not in the band <laughs> i i was in the band and cbs publishing gave me an advance of like 15 grand so i uh, i was driving an old beetle you know yeah, yeah. and uh, you were driving uh, a roller uh, by the end I of went the day myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. i'd always wanted to, i always wanted a convertible beetle so i got myself a convertible beetle which was yeah, second you know used obviously yeah so yeah. but yeah that was a, that was that was a weird one but yeah, the poor young band was fantastic well they were massive weren't they a, and and he yeah, sort of so, he he was always. Well, I mean, actually, every Christmas you hear Paul Young on that um, on the big Bob Geldof song, don't you? Or Midger song. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. I mean, he's he's still. I still see him around, uh, and he comes he comes down to Whitstable. To, he's got a sort of. Um, oh, he's got a new band, hasn't he? Yeah, it'll be twenty five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? No, the time flies. Yeah, Los Pacaminos. Los Pacaminos. And yeah. that's why he puts all his his thing in because he can. I mean, I love Paul. I think he's he's had a bit of a problems with his voice, and uh, yeah, and he he's kind of like he enjoys being in the ranks yeah. of a band where they all sing, and he he doesn't have to be the front man, that sort of thing. I saw them. Uh, hey, do you know you remember Hamish Stewart? Have you knocked around yeah. with Hamish? Yeah, and yeah. They, they played at one of his festivals, and what a great band! Brilliant accordion player. I can't remember his name, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, he died. He died. Did he? Yeah, oh. Matt. Matt was. Um, yeah, me and Matt and I go back quite a way. Oh no! He played on some of No Parley, I think, Matt. Right. Yeah, but I, I spoke to Paul because I was playing. In, I knew Matt lived in Brighton, and I, I was doing one of my evening with yeah. my one-man shows. I phoned Paul. I said, "Have you got Matt's number?" He said, uh, "He said, Bolts, did you not know that Matt died of cancer?" You know. Oh. Stuff, so. I did a. I did a song. Um, Hamish asked me up, and they did something with them on on this festival thing. Right. I'm shitting myself because right. they're all proper musicians. <laughs> yeah, he was on. The, he was on that, and yeah. oh, wonderful player. Yeah. That's sad. So you you yes. yeah. What is Cuckoo Karama about? I don't know. It's about nothing. It's a nonsense. <laughs> It doesn't make. Those, yeah, yeah. Okay, what is what is a kook? Is it a woman? No, I tell, you, I tell you what. It just reminded me. I lived in Brooklyn, in South East London. Right. And every day, I used to take my boys to school, and we had children. I used to drive, and there was a a cooker repair shop, and it was called <laughs> Kookarama. That's where I got it from. And then I heard a John Lennon song, a John that like, Dream Number Nine. Yeah. Or something I just I think I mingled the two things up. 
That's, it doesn't oh, mean right. anything. You know, people, right. when people ask Bob Dylan, you know, like, what's yeah. it about? You know, that doesn't know about anything. I yes, made that um, shit up, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, up, you make yeah. up some very nice songs. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's quite. Uh, I, I love the guitar playing on that as well. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, I've always um, had a thing about Gretsch guitars, but never felt man enough to play one. I, I, I had um, Tennessean, yeah, thin body with painted on f holes. I then I bought um, I bought a sixty-one twenty, which is. Um, off a guy, a guy around the corner from me, he went like this. I'm rehearsing with a poor young band, and I've got my 62 strap. And uh, we're giving it large at rehearsal. And, and I picked the, the guitar up by the tremolo arm, like an idiot, and I'm, I'm doing that, and it snapped. And the, the tremolo <laughs> arm snapped, but the thread uh, was inside the hole. See what I mean? And yeah. So I had a guitar yeah. technician there, and I said, Jimmy, can you fix that? And he said, that's a big problem, you know. So I phoned the guy up. Right around the corner from me in Broccoli, I went to this guy. We stayed up all night. I think we did some speed. I can't remember. And <laughs> he said, what are you going to do, Steve? There was a bit of a, a ridge on the rock, and we had to wiggle it round bit by bit. It took about five hours to get this thread out of there. But in the meantime, he said, uh, we started talking about guitars. And whatever guitar I said, I bet you haven't got that. He'd go, yeah, and he'd climb up this ladder and bring one down. <laughs> you know, we started talking about Rickenbackers. Yeah. I said, have you got um, you got 12-string Rickenbacker? Well, yeah. He said, Steve, have you ever seen a Rickenbacker 12-string con converter? I said, no. So he goes up the ladder, comes down. So he's, he's like Rickenbacker, 12-string, but it's got a reverse tremolo arm on, on it, right. which is like a lever. Okay. And under, under the bridge, it's got six, uh, like, grabbers. And what it does, the clue's in the name, yeah. you, you lift this lever up and it grabs all the secondary strings. And turns it. And you move this lever across and, and pulls them down. Yeah. So it, it then becomes a six-string Rickenbacker. Right. But but on the left hand, it's still a 12-string. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a bit weird. It's a bit, it's a bit shit. Yeah. <laughs> and he brings the one down. Yeah, he brings the one down with, uh, that's, you know, the one with rotor sound, flashing lights. Yeah. And, yeah, Rickenbacker and all this wow. sort of stuff. Wow. So he starts picking all this guitar stuff. We get onto we get onto Gretsch's, and he brings uh, the sixty-one twenty down, nineteen fifty-nine. Mm. He said, "This is Neil Young's guitar." No way. I said, "Excuse me." He said, "Yeah, this this guitar is the guitar he had when he joined Buffalo Springfield. It, it the bass player in Wishbone Ash bought it off Neil Young, and he brought it over to this side of the pond, and now I've got it." Wow. I said, I want it. Yeah, give I, it to me. I want yeah. it. And he, yeah, but he said, no, it's not for sale because he, he rents guitars out, right. you see. Yeah. He said, I can make as much money. So I pleaded and pleaded. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you give me your uh, Tennessee and, and 1,500 quid, it's yours. Ooh. This was in this was in 1982. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I did, and I got it, and I had it, oh. I had it for ages. Uh, what happened to that? my... My ex-wife made me sell it. Oh, you know? oh, oh dear. You know that thing, that don't sell guitars? Yeah, never sell guitars. Yeah. Because cause for, you know, you need to raise the money. You sell a guitar, you've got the money, then you spend the money, yeah. and you haven't got the money, and you haven't Go got the guitar. guitar. I know. So. I've had several like that myself. No, I've got, I've got, um, so now Gretsch have got their shit together. They've got, you know, they had a really bad period, and thank, but thanks to, uh, you know, Brian Setzer. Yeah. 
who's like kind of revamped the Gretsch brand and then, yeah. you know, the other thing with the X-Ray is guitars and he had, he's got original 6120s. Yes. And what they what, what they do now, they I mean, they, they've got a few shitty models, but they 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 have these vintage select, um, I haven't got one here, vintage select series, mm-hmm. um, which are exact reproduction, made by Fender in Japan to yeah. the original specification. And... Uh, so I've got a white falcon now. Ooh, nice. And a, and a, and a, and a 55, 61, 20. Both new. Well, they're both about three years old now. And they're fantastic. Yeah. They're great. Yeah, they're they, good. They're, I've got an old Tennessean, and it's a little bit temperamental. It's like yeah. a 63 or something. Um, yeah. And uh, I very rarely buy electric guitars. But the, funnily yeah. enough, the only two electric guitars I have are a, a, a Rickenbacker 12 string and the uh, and the Gretsch, yeah. so uh, yeah, yeah, they're sort of uh, in the arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Reckon back a twelve string. The first Who album, in fact, my generation. The first Who album with the song "My Generation" on it. I don't know that a lot of people realise this that um, every single track and the track "My Generation" probably one of the most bombastic tracks in rock. When that yeah. came out, you can't believe. You can't believe the impression it had on a, on a young mod like me, you know. Yeah. People trying to grab the guitar is a twelve string Rickenbacker, pretty clean. So every track on the album is there's nothing else, no distorted guitars, no. So everything was on a twelve string Rickenbacker. I... And when, when I did the gig with the live gig, I actually played and my generation on twelve string Rickenbacker with Pete. I thought this is. This it's is can't it. get any better than this. No, thing, can it? no. no. Yeah. I, uh, so, Alice, Alice, let's just quick, quickly. Go on. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, talking about acoustic guitars, of which, to me, they're an instrument of torture. You know, you write songs on them, and then that's what I used to think. But by yeah. by a weird twist of fate, that's how I make my living now doing acoustic gigs. Yeah, I was doing this album down in 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 East in Surrey a, a few years ago, and. Uh, we wanted to borrow, um, we wanted some acoustic guitars. So I phoned Roger Daltrey up. Yeah. And he came over, much to my surprise, he said, he said, yeah, I've got a couple books, I'll come over. So Roger came over to the, the studio, Park Park Gates, I think, studio down, I don't know if it's still there or not. And he had two two acoustic guitars. I can't be sure on, one was a Martin. Yeah. It was the one with all the abalone around the edge. Yeah, that'd be Is a, that D- a dreadnought shape. Yeah, be a D45 potentially. Yeah. It was the best it was the best guitar, but not only that, he also came with an original Everly Brothers Gibson. Right. And both these guitars subsequently have been the best acoustic guitars I've ever played in my life. They both the Martin when you played it had that yeah. that purr on the bottom, you know, where it's the other strings rattling on, and it was so easy. And and the Everly Brothers Gibson. Yeah, I love those, don't you? I do. Now you made you made some like that. Haven't I have. You? Yeah, we've made lots of those. We've we actually made it a guitar for um, Phil Everly, um, right? And uh, he used it one of those Buddy Holly ones. I don't know if you've seen those with the leather covers that we make, but. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I do. Yeah. I, a D forty five is one of the f- my favourites, but you don't find many good ones. And I'm sure yeah. old Rogers got a pretty damn good one. Yeah, yeah, it would have. But also um, talking about the Everly Brothers, you know, yeah. like there's a, there's a few clips on YouTube, aren't they? That they were great players, weren't they? They just were so 
so cool. This one with your... And one of them's like capoed up and he's playing the high bits, you know, that's just playing so cool. It doesn't matter who, how many singer-songwriters in America you talk to, most of them cite the Everly Brothers yeah. as, as the reason they play... See the Elvis or the Everly Brothers, you know. And, and, uh, then they, and then there'd always be a bridge, wouldn't there? One of them had... Was it Donna Phil come... And that's the point where you'd he'd break your heart, yeah. you know, with that <laughs> yeah. with that bit in the middle, and then they go back to the song itself. Ah, oh, super yeah. stuff, sure. super stuff, isn't yeah. it? Let's talk about your music now, shall we, or your band? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay, so you, um, oh, uh, you've got so, right. You let start. Me, yeah, you okay, start. there you go. Okay, I have a band, Dead Man's Corner, and this started off about five years ago. Um, I got myself into doing covers, acoustic cover, uh, doing gigs, that's how I make a living. And it's great. I have like, there's songs that I picked from my own personal, songs that have been influential in my development, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't do any old bollocks because, hey, why don't you do Brown Eyed Girl? I go, no, they go, why not? So I don't like it. What do you mean you don't like it? I said, well, it's not that I don't like it. I've heard every two bit pub band nail it into the ground, you know. So I do all these songs and they can be weird songs, you know any old thing from the shadows to Johnny Cash and all that. But I started to bug Louise going, you know, I really want to do uh, original stuff, yeah. but I don't have a band. And I like a three piece band. That's really my default mode. That's what, but I didn't want it to be guitar, bass and drums. What I really want is me on guitar and vocals. And I want Hammond organ played by an old Jamaican guy with a gold tooth and a pork pie hat. He yeah. plays like a cross between Jimmy Smith and Steppenwolf yeah. and bass pedals. And on drums, I want a big, fat, gothic lesbian bird. He'll larrup a kit like hell. <laughs> I said, but that's not that's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. Yeah. Oh. And so anyway, so it was my birthday in Whitstable. We were at the Labour the Labor Club in Whitstable. Yeah. And I met this guy and uh, a friend of mine said, Steve, meet this, this is Alan Cook. He plays... He's a professional pedal steel player. I, I had, I've got a pedal steel, well I had, but, and so I said, oh really, so we got chat, and he's from Manchester. Yeah. So my brain quickly went, yeah, da, 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 da. my song's a bit weird. You know, they're not overtly psychedelic, but they, they got like that strange sort of David Lynch thing where it appears normal, but there's something quite not right about it and i love that <laughs> yeah and that, that's kind of the brief with dead man's corner so with uh but so i got put pedal steel in an inappropriate situation creepy shit. Um, <laughs> but then he left because he said i was making him deaf oh, dear. but but yeah dead man's corner dead man's corner dot net oh well, i have to check that out hopefully this summer there might be some outdoor gigs and we can come down and watch you play with the yeah. band I'll be there. And, uh, yeah, I will. I'll be there. And uh, let's. Alex, uh, it's a great, great talking to you. And uh, you too, Steve, yeah. as ever. And uh, thanks for uh, coming on and uh, having a bit of a chat. Oh yes. But um, you look really well. I like the wood in the background. I've got wood in my background. You've got wood in the background. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's not a shed. It's a cabin. Yeah, I love it. You see this? Oh, what's that? It says here. It says. Um, Galaxy Lifetime Achievement Award 2013, Steve Bolton. Lifetime Achievement Award. Is that for eating lots of Galaxy bars? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, these people phone me up and say, Steve, we love you and we'd like to... We have a, Every year we have like a, an award ceremony in a, in a club in Soho and we'd like Ooh. to present you with 
the Lifetime Achievement Award. I, I wanted Best Newcomer Award. <laughs> Alistair, great. Okay, mate, take it easy. Bye. Nice to chat. Bye-bye. Bye. That was my conversation with Steve Boltz. He was in his cabin in Whitstable. As I said before, it's really worth going to see Steve play live. He's always got some great stories. His live act is really good fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. And if you get the chance, give us a review. Five stars really helps, apparently. Gets the name out there. You've been listening to Tuned with Alastair Atkins.